What time is it? Well, you know it's maritime. Welcome to our podcast where we talk about all things maritime. You know, the maritime industry is a major driving force in the global economy, and it affects all of us where we live. Our goal with this podcast is to raise awareness about the extraordinary people and amazing companies in this industry. And I'm super happy to talk today with Christine James. Christine is with Charles Taylor TPA. She's got some great experience and perspective to share with us today. I'm Colin Folon. I'm a maritime lawyer at Schwabi Williamson and Wyatt. And Christine James is a P&I claims manager at Charles Taylor TPA. She oversees a variety of claims, including maritime benefits claims made by Jones Act crew members. She's got in-depth experience in the maritime industry, both from the insurance side as well as the vessel owner side. So she's truly able to understand the issues and offer educated solutions for folks who are dealing or struggling with claims. Christine is a member of the Women's International Shipping and Trading Association, also known as WISTA, the Puget Sound Maritime Claims Association, and the Marine Insurance Association of Seattle. Prior to Charles Taylor, Christine worked at Trident Seafoods, and before then, Liberty Mutual. She holds a degree from Oregon State University in public health. Wow, that's a mouthful of experience. Thank you, Christine, so much for taking the time to join me today. Thank you, Colin. It, it is, it's so f- much fun to be here. What a great idea. What a great cool. idea this is. <laughs> Glad to hear it. Glad to, you and I have worked together for many years now, but maybe you could tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, so I am in Seattle uh, by way of Alaska, by way of Portland. So originally from Portland, which Colin, you're familiar with that town, I think a little bit, and uh, ended up in Alaska working for a while and then moved down here just north of Seattle. Um, love it. Uh, Pacific Northwest uh, has kind of been always my home and absolutely gorgeous. So I'm here. I have three children, uh, married to my high school boyfriend. <laughs> so I have a very boring life, needless <laughs> to say. Hey, it, it it sounds a lot like mine. I also uh, happen to marry my high school sweetheart. Uh, uh, so interesting to know about you. What's one of the top five things that you love to do when you're not working? being in the Northwest. There are a lot of, of off-road parks and we have a couple of Jeep Wranglers. Uh, we like to take up into the hills. The kids love it. We love it. And it was a good compromise from my husband's previous uh, hobbies of sport bikes and dirt bikes. We love being out in, uh, you know, near Pilchuck and we are really close to Baker National Forest and Olympic and it's, it's absurd. So anything having to do with that area you know, we're out and about and exploring. I don't think we'll ever see it all <laughs> as long as, however long we're here. I come from an insurance background, obviously, and I went to work for the vessel owner and I was so excited to to bring new and exciting things to them. And I remember sitting in a meeting, I'd only been there a few months and I wanted to change all these things. I had all these grand ideas. I'm going to fix everything. And my boss at the time kind of leaned back in his chair and he smiled and he said, wow, you know, what did we do before you got here? with pure sarcasm. And I remember <laughs> turning 50 shades of purple and going, oh my, oh my God. Cause even in your willingness to help, you forget that, you know, there is a, a level of humility that should be involved in it. Maybe asking questions first. And I remembered this is why effective communication is so important. <laughs> so that's my roundabout way, I guess, of saying that was such a lesson learned. I've never forgotten it, man. It's a big deal. You know, humility can take you a, a long way. Just being able to kind of stop and, and laugh at yourself if you say something, you think, "Why? You know, where did that come from?" Uh, but but communication is critical, and it you know whether it's in life or in, in what you do, you know, you've worked with countless claimants from a variety of backgrounds, education levels, countries, and 
you know, they're often facing something they haven't dealt with before. And unless you're communicating with them clearly, you know, a lot of things can go sideways. It's a good lesson learned. Absolutely. Absolutely. So how would you, and, and maybe you have done this, how would you describe what you do to folks who aren't familiar with uh, P&I or protection indemnity claims or who are outside the maritime industry? Well, you lie. No, um, <laughs> you don't lie. You don't lie. Um, it's hard because, you know, when I worked in State Act Workers' Comp, you said, hey, I'm a workers' compensation case manager, and then you ran. But here, you know, with maritime, it is so much different because you are on the front line. It's very different in terms of how you interact with that crew member that sometimes it's hard to say what exactly it is you do. And Mm -hmm. I've said things like risk management, vessel risk manager, and that doesn't even really cover it. You know, a good example, I think, is, you know, I was sitting at lunch with some friends and I had a call from, uh, you know, ship to shore medicine about a medevac. Oh, put the flight surgeon on. And they're hearing this. Oh, okay, let's do this. And then a few minutes later, the phone rings again. Oh, why don't you see if you can get him a net, an iPad with US Netflix? That'll keep him happy. And I get off the phone and one of my friends is like, what the, do you do? What is your job? <laughs> because it it is shockingly odd and creative and weird. So it's it's really hard to say. Uh, I used to say that, you know, I just, I take care of vessel crew, however that looks. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Well, talk to me about Charles Taylor and how you perceive its role in the maritime industry. Obviously, very large company, but you know, what does Charles Taylor do? <laughs> what what don't we do? So Charles Taylor is, you know, London-based global provider of insurance services. They have ins- both insurance services, claims, technology solutions. We basically have these three operating units, one being the insurance management side, one being InsureTech, which is our technology-based um, stuff. There's a lot of cyber involved in that. And then claim solutions. And my role with the TPA group is in the claim solutions business uh, operation. And so I sit there and we focus on uh, managing claims for vessel owners. That said, we we do have a state act arm and a longshore arm. Um, but my team and, and me in particular, we work with vessel owners almost exclusively who are coming from an in-house processing setup to a TPA for the very first time, which is a, a very sensitive and scary for them sometimes uh, situation. And it takes a, a pretty unique and creative approach. Um, but we do a lot of things. We are, you know, we're, I think, well, the day is still young, but we have about 3,000 employees, you know, 120 offices, you know, all over every major port. And that's between claim staff, surveyors, quite a, a vast array of, of individuals. I mean, we have an aviation arm, oil and gas, you know, you name it. We do a lot of things for a lot of people. And then in the Pacific Northwest, we're still so new. A lot of people don't know who we are. Um, the name is new. Sometimes the only time they've ever heard of the name is when I went there from Trident and people would say, well, who's that, you know? And and so it, it can be a little confusing. And, and again, you know, for my children it has been particularly disappointing because, you know, I left Liberty Mutual for Trident and my daughter's comment to me at four was, wow, I love their gum. And I was like, oh, no, kiddo, it's not the gum company. It's the seafood company. <laughs> and then I went to work for Charles Taylor and she looked at me and she's like, oh, I love those shoes. And she didn't even finish the sentence before she said, wait, it's not them, is it? No, it's not. It's insurance, kid. Come on, you know. <laughs> but I've consistently disappointed them with my my employment choices. But we've got a lot going on, a lot of new stuff happening. And, and then, of course, a very solid placement out of London. It's a it's an interesting day. So you use some you use some terms of art there that 
kind of help define for some of our listeners. So TPA generally means third-party administrator. So it's somebody who's coming in outside of a company to handle a claim involving the company, right? Exactly. So it's an insurance service that doesn't write the risk. So we are in between an insurer or a P&I club um, and the vessel owner or the employer. So we're in the middle processing the claims and, and managing things as they go. And it's kind of a unique standpoint. You know, I was familiar with TPAs at Liberty because we had a, a TPA involved. And the first thing I learned there was they didn't handle them any differently. So insurance company or not, the same service applied. And I think that was very beneficial in coming here because otherwise I really had no experience with how a TPA functioned in this world. Because why would you need them? You have an insurer, you have a PI club, but I learned everybody can't be everywhere. And then thus the need for these people uh, who specialize in this. But what's one thing that you would say that you take particular pride in when it comes to what you do at Charles Taylor? The trust factor, because, and, and you know, you being a lawyer, obviously, the punitive damages side and all these things we, we encounter in the Jones Act, you know, it's one of the odd jurisdictions where we can literally litigate over how we treated someone. You know, you never see that in state acts because it doesn't matter. But vessel owners can be very nervous about handing over their crew to someone else and, and working with Trident. You know, the first thing I learned is those are your coworkers. Those aren't claimants. We don't use that word. Um, those are your coworkers. Mm-hmm. And that really carried through with me here at Charles Taylor. When we go to talk to vessel owners who are thinking about going outside and having someone like us, that's one of the things that I like to mention because it, it's a huge undertaking. It, it's a huge trust. Because if we screw up, <laughs> and I don't, no, I'm kidding. Um, I'm sure I do. But <laughs> if we screw up, it can be a incredibly expensive and there's no ceiling mm-hmm. and um, it would be detrimental to our, our name and our brand. There's a lot at stake. And so mm-hmm. I think I go in there with that empathetic mindset of the fact that we're even here is a huge honor because mm-hmm. they've been doing it in-house. They're not broken. They don't really need us, but this is making sense for them right now for whatever reason. What's one thing that you would say that um, either you or Charles Taylor has been doing to innovate? We've really started working on internal access to information. And I think one that that I'm really excited about that, that helps my area is we merged with Alan Coba. And a lot of attorney head, attorneys on this coast had worked with them um, for MSAs and that sort of thing. And while my jurisdiction doesn't require the MSA approval, I think we're all smart enough to know that given time, they'll figure that out and we're going to end up having to do that too. But having Medicare's interest and asking those questions, getting a rated age, getting a life care plan, that's now a service we have internally. And, and I think it's fabulous. And then we also have, of course, our uh, bill review, medical bill review view is part of our company. So we can, we have quick access to that. And despite the size of the company, um, because we we continue to grow really daily is the fact that you can still pick up the phone and call a bill reviewer, mm. you know, coming from a large company that doesn't exist. You have to put in a request that then goes to someone else. And then goes to someone, I can pick up the phone and call a bill reviewer and say, I have a question about this bill that they have questions about who, what do I do? And, and you still get humans, you still get, you know, so while we're a large company, we still remain um, very small. And then there's a lot of work in technology and cyber. And I think, you, you know, you mentioned you're, you're working in, in the cyber stuff as well. Uh, these days, it's huge. Uh, there've been a lot of breaches, a lot of vessel owner breaches, um, very scary stuff. 
And I don't know a lot about it, <laughs> but mm-hmm. we continue to build that piece of it too, which I think is going to become more and more of a need going forward. I, I couldn't agree more. And I, you know, I see clients in a variety of industries who've gone through a data breach and, you know, some industries are, are very familiar and they're very aware of both the legal requirements and the risks and they're well prepared. I think for a long time, and some might disagree with me, but I think for a long time, their maritime industry just didn't think that that was something that could happen to them. That, you know, why would somebody um, hack into my systems? I don't have the same kind of valuable data as, say, a bank or a hospital or a, a government contractor, but that's just not the case. They're, they're just as um, susceptible to attacks as any company or any individual. So that's, it's really cool to hear that Charles Taylor is, is developing um, a program around that. Let me ask you this. You you mentioned you had kind of an interesting path. Of, I think you said Oregon, Alaska, Washington. What drew you into, or maybe how did you fall into or end up working in the maritime industry? What what was your path and inroad? Uh, well, I was at Liberty Mutual at the time in Portland, Oregon, and I managed a complex claims unit. And at the time, Liberty had some, not a lot, of uh, MEL cover. And, and for our listeners, MEL stands oh. for what? Uh, oh, gosh, I hope I'm right. Marine Employer Liability. There you go. Okay. Whew, because that would be really embarrassing. Um, <laughs> so uh, they had some of that. They had some longshore. And because of those two jurisdictions, they were automatically defaulted to the complex claims unit. And so it didn't matter how long they'd been open. They, they just defaulted there. And so in my unit, I had a couple of people. One you might know from the longshore world. Craig Coons was one of the first people... Uh, in my team. I think he was president of the Longshore Association and he's long retired, of course, but um, as a new manager, that's a really intimidating team. And uh, because if anyone who knows Craig, he's been in the industry forever, very well known, very experienced, and I'm a brand new manager. And I think at that time, the only jurisdiction under my belt was Oregon. So I was over my head to say the least. And Mm -hmm. the first thing I did was uh, learn from Craig. It was kind of a reverse leadership situation. And when he was out of the office, I had to step in and and I really loved the way those things worked because, you know, state act is very well established. What you do, when you do it, how you do it. Um, we have statute rule procedure bulletin. Um, you know, it, it doesn't have a lot of, of loopholes. It doesn't have a lot of gray area. Longshore, a little bit more, but still everything is quite regimented. But then the Jones Act claims he had had nothing. And I went, what the, what is this? <laughs> no rules? No. Oh my gosh. And I was immediately intrigued. And then um, that was the first workings with Trident Seafoods. They had been our account at Liberty Mutual mm-hmm. and they were kind enough to teach us. They sent me to uh, Longshore Jones Act boot camp in Houston uh, with Tom Fitzhugh back in the day. I think he might still be around and kicking. <laughs> and that's really where I got my start. And I loved it. And um, I never wanted to go back. What's one thing you wish you had known before going into marine claims? I think I wish I learned sooner that crew require a different level of treatment than a a state act or a longshore claim, in my opinion. Um, Maybe that will meet with some poor reviews. But but the truth is that it's a very different day with them. They, They don't live where they work. So they're traveling to get home or maybe they're not. Maybe they're inpatient in a hospital and... It's just very different how you have to engage them. And I made some mistakes in the beginning. I, I really, I came from that corporate insurer side where people were numbers. 
you remembered everybody's claim number, you could have spouted them out by heart. And then I come to work on the vessel owner side and pretty soon I couldn't tell you a claim number, but I knew everybody's name. It was different. And then your interactions were in person. And so, you know, on a pre-departure, you you would see someone that that you just got through surgery and they come up and they say, oh, thank you. You know, and you're just, you never see the end of a claim on the corporate insurer side, but you see it on the vessel owner side. And I really wish I knew that that human component didn't exist in my prior life. Mm-hmm. That I, I really wish I had learned that sooner because I, I think I made some mistakes. If, if I could go back there, I can think of a few claims right off the bat where the letter was far too formal and the communication was far too overly professional for no good mm-hmm. reason. And mm-hmm. just a, you know, that learning curve. Even though that you're remote all the time, how, how do you think your coworkers would describe you if we had them on this podcast today? Well, you know, I hope they would say that I was supportive and reliable, you know, because I, you know, in, in learning leadership from, from my prior employment, you know, it's all about being a servant to your team. That's really what you are. You're not there because you know more than everyone else. You're there because you have the ability to serve them and make them them better and, and make sure they can get their job done first. And you put yourself behind that. And, you know, then if they shine, so do you. And so, you know, learning that management style, I, I kind of, I tend to drop everything for them when they need it, whenever they need it so that they know they have support. I hope they would say that, but I honestly don't know. <laughs> What would you say is one of the, the common myths or misperceptions about the maritime industry for folks who, who haven't seen what you've seen? I think the common misperception is that they are a lot safer than people think. Um, I think they get a bad rap sometimes for being reckless and and not having safety programs. And, you know, it's glamorized on TV, we know. And, and the truth is, they are really safe environments, and they, and they are very healthy environments. And they work really hard to make sure that, you know, on these vessels, there's, there's good food for the crew, there's, there's hydration stations, there's all these things. And, and they, they care about their health and wellness, and they do really good as best as they can, uh, screenings of, of folks, because it doesn't benefit them to send somebody sick out there because you don't make money when you're spending money on claims. Claims are very expensive and so is the insurance that you need for it. (laughs) So they have no vested interest in putting profits over people, which is like the common thing we hear when, when people talk about, well, you know, those, those shipping industries, they treat their crew terribly. They pay them $4 a day. That's not true at all. A lot of them do very well, you know, and they're very well taken care of. And then if they're sick or injured, they're even more well taken care of because the vessel owner has a vested interest in doing things correctly. There are probably some bad apples in the bunch always, but I, I think, I think people don't give them enough credit for the work that they have. And I think COVID really shed light on that because I don't think anyone realized the best positioned employer anywhere were vessel owners. Pandemics were not new to them. Outbreaks were not new to them. We've had protocols forever. Um, H1N1, SARS, swine flu, tuberculosis, Ebola. We had protocols for that. The difference with COVID was now there was this state and federal component. And so the vessel owners, even though they had these massive, wonderful procedures, weren't going to get to use them. They were going to be mandated. Really, if the if everyone were smart, they would have had vessel owners in the room. And here, we'll show you how it's done because <laughs> they've been doing it a long time. I can't agree more. I, I thought it was fascinating to see as a pandemic started, how quickly the fishing industry, for example, adapted to 
you know, dusted off the the SARS or the H1N1 protocols, took a deep look at what was developing in the state and local levels in terms of restrictions, because it differed a lot up and down the West Coast. I mean, between Oregon and Alaska, you had a lot of uh, hoops to jump through and, and navigation to do just to, to make sure you complied as well as did what you thought was was right for for COVID protocols. But it, it was fascinating to see how quickly the fishing industry and and others, shipping as well, rose to the occasion. So I guess to that point, you know, talking about the pandemic, you you've worked remotely for years now, both before and during the pandemic. How would you say uh, Charles Taylor met the challenge of, of the pandemic? Um, I, I found it to be really seamless. I mean, the company is diverse and flexible in terms of there are quite a few remotes that work from home in various areas of, of the company, not just Marine. And then we have a hub in Wilton, Connecticut, where there are people who go into the office. And I think it was less than 24 hours after things truly started to close that um, they had already set up a schedule for who would go in and sign checks because obviously there's a financial component, you know, and the mail is still coming in. And they would alternate these single individuals to go in and open mail and, and sign checks and, and do all these things. And we had zero disruption in business, which I thought was a, a very good testament to our emergency management plan. Because every company pretty much has one now. And you hope to never use it, but you're real happy when it works. <laughs> and oh, no so kidding. it was pretty seamless. And then I think the difference, though, was for those of us with, with kids in school, now they're home. And I think no one, well, maybe Comcast knew, but no one knew the strain on one's modem when five people in a house are trying to Zoom all at the same time. You know, it's pretty hilarious. And, and of course, being chastised by your child, you know, who you yell at all summer long to be quiet. And then you come out, you're laughing in the hallway for some reason, and they pop out of their room. I'm in a meeting and slam the door and, and you're on the other side of that. And it feels pretty terrible. But we we did really well with it. And then, you know, working for the vessel owner side, a lot of us case managers really had to become COVID experts for our companies that we work for and the panic. Because despite them having that that procedure and all of that information, things were were being mandated in a weird way. So like our cargo vessels or our international foreign article sailings, they were saying there'd be no crew changeovers. And that might seem fine for somebody who wants a lot of overtime, but what we saw was people not getting an end date. And you kind of forget now, but looking back when we were in March, April, May, we didn't know if this would end. We didn't know how this would look. You know, we were all ducking and covering for uh, significant fatalities in the marine industry because we know anything on a boat spreads like wildfire. Mm -hmm. And we were prepping for the worst. And so these crews sitting out there on these boats, not being able to do change outs, And then if they're seen on shore for an injury or illness, wouldn't be allowed back on the boat. And that was a a federal requirement. Mm -hmm. And so if they were injured, they didn't want to tell anyone. So now you had that component. And then if they did want to come off the boat, but couldn't because of crew changes, we had a lot of mental health issues. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the international seafarers, uh, they were amazing. They provided 24-hour support by Zoom, by telephone, Mm -hmm. and various other modalities to every vessel globally. And we were allowed to give out that number where they could call and talk to people because, you know, you think about it, those crew are sitting on those boats. A lot of them don't have contact with their families and they're being told this is this pandemic and people are dying. You don't know if your family's okay. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine how they must've felt. And so we, we saw a, a pretty decent uptick in people being removed from duty, you know, mm-hmm. suicide watch, psychological watch and, and assistance there. It was 
COVID changed a lot of things for us. I absolutely can understand why too. And, you know, one thing I'd noticed with, with vessel owners, there was a lot of quick response, quick to attention, uh, doing it the right way. But man, that came at a financial cost as well to make sure everything went so, so smoothly. What do you think will some of the lessons learned will be from the pandemic for folks in the maritime industry? I mean, obviously folks knew about, you know, they dealt with, as you said, SARS, H1N1, but there was something different about this go around here with COVID-19. What do you think the takeaways will be or the things that will change as a result? Well, I, I think I think it'll be more common to see masks, gloves, and those sanitizing stations all over the vessels. You know, it's it's ironic because I I did a lot of work with the flu shot program at Trident Seafoods when I was there um, to reduce our illnesses because flu was was very dangerous for us out there at sea as well, especially when it went on for so long and um, they were very expensive claims and. You know, we talked about gloves and masks that really wasn't a big deal and no one's going to use them. And I think that's one thing that might always be available out there now, which is a little different. And I think you might see more people using them. I think there's a, a little bit more awareness to how germs spread in general. And then I also think our perception of work has changed. So, you know, there was a time maybe people have grown out of it. I I wish I could, but you know, you were the first one in the office, the last one out of the office. You didn't take a sick day, you sit at your desk, you're dying, but you're still there. Those days are gone. Now you are a bad employee. If you come to work sick, how dare you infect everyone? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And our whole perception has changed. And now you're not that rock star. If you come to work sick, now you are, you're putting people at risk. And I think we're going to see that even in the vessel industry, because when people are sick, they go to the medic and they stay in their stateroom. That never happened before, very rarely. I mean, um, and now I think we'll see that more commonly. People will be more cautious about going into the galley or going into the factory floor or, or you know, whatever without, if, if they're not feeling well. And I think there'll be more use of that vessel medical officer if they have one. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. I, I hope that that plays out that way. What do you think the maritime industry can do to to better foster diversity, equity, and inclusion? There is not a lot of awareness of, of this kind of work. There just isn't. And I don't know why that is. And I think it's it's probably because no one you know sits at the dinner table with their parents as a toddler and says, when I grow up, I want to be in insurance. It just doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. But I think there should be, you know, there isn't a lot of information out there on how rewarding this can be. And one of the things that I love about it is I was one of those kids that changed my mindset every day but I wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted to be a doctor. This job is the perfect mix of both, (laughs) except you really can't get in trouble for either one of those things, you know, Mm -hmm. because you're not the doctor and you're not the lawyer. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I think there's just not enough emphasis. And then for women, I don't think women think about the maritime industry quite like, like other industries. And, you know, there aren't very many of us that, that do this kind of thing, but then ironically on the work comps, state act side, it's probably 95% women, <laughs> but then you get over here to the Marine side and, um, vessel risk managers, vessel safety managers, vessel claims managers are typically, you know, not women. There's very few of us mm-hmm. and it's not for lack of, of want. It's for lack of, of people being out there and even knowing it exists. And I think that there's just not enough, not enough knowledge about it. And I, I don't know if it's a maritime Academy thing because everyone wants to be a captain or an engineer or, 
you know, but there, it'd be really great to have, you know, interest in this because it really is, it really is a fun job. It can be very lucrative too, if you're good at it. Anytime that we have had an event where we've got folks together from the maritime industry, you know, if we're doing a a breakfast seminar or just a, a networking event, it's totally different. We've had people in our office, uh, these morning meetings where, you know, we're serving breakfast. It's like 7.30 or 8 in the morning. And it sounds like people are having happy hour. They're just so, it's it's a loud room. People are happy to see each other. There's lots of conversation, even among like people who are competitors in business. They just, there's this remarkable collegiality and kind of close-knit to some extent community in, in the maritime world. Why do you think that is? I think is it really is a small circle. You know, yeah. it's a a huge industry. It's it's a super large dollar industry, and but yet you'll talk to someone who met someone at some club function three or four years ago, and they're you know on a completely different post, and they know each other's names, and they know you know who is who, and it is so shocking to me. But I also think that, you know, we all kind of service the same people here and we all want the same thing. I've never felt, maybe there's something wrong with me, but I've never felt competitiveness with, you know, the other TPAs locally, because we all seem to do things a little differently. You know, an independent adjuster is very different from the work that I do. And, but then we all want to learn the same things. We all use the same resources. You know, we're all fans of Schwabi and, you know, so we're all there at that breakfast because we've all been, you know, worked with you guys and and the topics are so fabulous. And so everyone comes together and it's great, but I think we don't see each other or even communicate with each other outside of those venues. So that would be a wonderful thing to change someday, you know, to have it more open focus groups and little side groups would be great because it doesn't make sense to close things up. It doesn't make sense to not share ideas and not share. It benefits us all. And I think we know that when one case goes super bad, we all pay for it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and you never forget who did that, by the way, <laughs> you always <laughs> remember, but you know, it's, it's the type of industry where if it's the fishing industry, you're working with a hundred different countries and a thousand different languages. And there's just, there's room for every possible country, person, you name it in this industry. And I just think more awareness is going to bring more people in and we're going to have a much bigger group going forward. And then maybe we won't know each other as well. <laughs> I kind of don't <laughs> want that though. I kind of love the, how the group is, but but it's it's crazy because there's just not that competition that you would see with commercial insurance. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe you could you could share with our listeners the best way for for them to learn more about Charles Taylor or how they can connect with you if they've got questions for you. Absolutely. So um, Charles Taylor, of course, go to our website, charlestaylor.com. Um, you'll get all of our business locations though. So it could be a little bit daunting. So if you want to find me directly, I, I am on LinkedIn, Christine James. Um, I also have email, uh, christine.james at charlestaylor.com. And you feel free to contact me anytime. And I'd love to chat maritime stuff. So feel free. (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you, Christine, so much for joining us today. And thank you to our listeners for tuning into this podcast. That's all for this episode. And we'll see you next time when you know it's maritime. Maritime.